So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Trends, sex advice, and amazing life stories provided for your pleasure every month. Here's what's coming up. I came to the conclusion that there's a man on his own, and I move in, and it's a couple newly engaged, waiting to get married. I was moved into their flat, basically. Corruption, surveillance, and visa weekends. What happened when one listener cut corners in China? Plus... Can I put the probe that I've pissed through inside of your body and thrust it about? Alex Fox on the blue moments that can give you the blues. And Ollie Peart spams Spotify. It's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters. And hello to Emily, who reached out after my interview last month with Antonia about narcolepsy. Uh, She says, Ollie, I just wanted to thank you. I've been struggling for the last few years with falling asleep at inappropriate times and in inappropriate places, I'd chalked it up to stress and overwork. Even my doctors suspected it was simply a vitamin deficiency and could do very little to help. But after listening to your podcast, I looked into narcolepsy. I got a referral for a sleep clinic. I knew almost nothing about it before listening to your show, but I realised how Antonia's early symptoms were scarily similar to my own. And this really pushed me to go back to the doctors, equipped with much more information and confidence that what I was experiencing wasn't normal. So thank you, Antonia, for speaking out about narcolepsy. It was incredibly brave and will surely be a huge help to even more people in my position. Uh, Emily, that is amazing feedback. Thank you so much. Um, I hope that you get the help that you need. I forwarded your email on to Antonia. And it is one of the most satisfying things about doing this show um, that these days so many of our middle feature interviews are man fans who got in touch with their experiences. They wanted to share their story. Um, And usually uh, people like that, including Antonia, want to do that because they want to reach other people who might be affected by it, who might change their mind about it. That is why they want to do it. So, Emily, that's exactly the feedback we want to hear. Um, It's what it's all about. So, hooray. Um, And talking about community... Uh, Thank you enormously to our sponsor for this month's episode, who is an anonymous man fan in Pittsburgh, who says, Ollie, I have spent days listening to you and the team and wanted to recognise how much I love your podcast by sponsoring an episode. COVID has been really tough and I've learned to appreciate the things which have brought me happiness. We, the healthcare workers of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, want to thank the other workers worldwide who have done such great work and dedicate an episode of your show to them in the spirit of moving on collectively to a better place. Wow, how do you follow that? Probably in a more articulate way than I'm capable of providing. But thank you, that's a brilliant thing. Um, And this Anonymous Man fan has donated the equivalent that a company would to get a sponsored slot here at the beginning of the show. Uh, if you'd like to do the same, we would very much like to hear from you. Uh, monmanwith2ends.co.uk. You can find all the links there. Obviously, our sponsorship rates are usually better suited to a company. But as we always say, uh, you can chuck us a few quid if that's all you have. Every little helps. Go to the beer money page and buy us a beer. Uh, it is all massively appreciated. Uh, right, coming up today, you will learn where 12 people are expected to sleep on nine beds. You'll learn what subdrop is, and you'll learn how to get three billion streams on Spotify. Let's go. Time for the Zeitgeist, sponsored by Manscaped, with Ollie Pitt. Hello, Ollie. Hey, Ollie. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Uh, you have been apparently practising to do a handstand this was our off-air bants, but I just felt inclined to mention it because it fascinated me. Why? I've been working out quite a lot, uh, keeping fit and all that, trying to lose weight. I had noticed the difference when we met in person the one time that happened. But, I mean, I hadn't seen yeah. you for a year, so, you know, that could have tracked in either direction, couldn't it? I saw someone doing this thing called a crow pose on the internet, uh, which is basically where you balance on your hands and mm. sort of, like, put your knees under your 
underarms and then sort of like you you like balance and i was like oh, i really want to do that and i don't know why i wanted to do that no i, I don't know why because be you're not seven years old like what's the motivation to do that well it's like a yoga move and i thought oh that just might be quite fun but i saw a video online explaining how to do it and then the video kept going and it said oh why don't you learn how to do a handstand and i thought yeah you know what i'm 35 i've never been able to do a handstand in my life I'm oh, that's do a what this is really about it's about pushing off a impending midlife crisis isn't it if it is a midlife crisis i'm glad it's learning how to do handstands and not buying massive tvs or a stupid car yet you know starts with the handstands yet (laughs) starts with the handstands then you upload them to tiktok then you need a big tv to watch them on (laughs) no i'm refusing to upload to tiktok although i did upload my cropos to instagram of course and you it did. got lots of likes. So, did you, you know, did that make you feel good, Ollie? Was that validating? Yeah, absolutely. It validated my efforts and I felt like uh, the world loved me for a brief moment. Right, let's check in with how you got on with uh, your challenge for this month's show. It came from Lucy in Leeds uh, and she was asking you, Ollie, to learn how to keyword spam the internet. Uh, now you're an expert, can you just uh, bring us up to speed, redefine what is keyword spamming? Keyword spamming or keyword stuffing is basically where you overload some content could be a video or an article or whatever it could literally anything music Uh with with keywords or phrases that basically mean that a a website like google or ask jeeves ranks it higher in their search so if you search for something like leather shoes you rank at the top because you've gone check out these leather shoes these lovely leather shoes that we have on this leather shoes website you'll enjoy these leather shoes. But it's not just about Mm. ranking, is it? I thought it was actually just about um, trying to piggyback on the back of trends that your page, your items got nothing to do with. Some people do do that, where they they use keywords, all those phrases, in places which might not be relevant to the content itself. Actually, that happens most obviously, I suppose, on, on eBay. And we've all experienced this. Someone will be selling something, like a pair of shoes again, but they'll go... They're a bit like Nike, or they're not Nikes. (laughs) They are these fake ones, but they'll put the brand name in. Yes. And that means that when you search Nike, actually, these shoes will come up as well. It's actually banned on eBay. You can't do it on eBay. You're not supposed to, but people do it anyway. I was going to say, I think I saw a documentary about this Lush. The cosmetics brand was suing Amazon, I think, because they were um, allowing a seller who was selling products that were a bit like the things you can buy in Lush, you know, bath bombs and stuff to be tagged with Lush. So if you search on Amazon for Lush, it came up as if it was a Lush product and it isn't because they don't sell on Amazon. But as we explored in our June episode, this can manifest itself in some surprising niches, can't it? So um, my name has been a keyword spam term for a guy trying to sell plays on Spotify Keyword spamming in music is a big thing. Artists will create songs and albums with names like White Noise Baby Sleep, Rain Sounds, Deep Sleep Music Collective. Hold on, those are all really useful if you're a parent, Ollie, and you will soon learn that those are not in any way keyword spams. Those are amazing things to have on Spotify. (laughs) White Noise albums, you need hours of it. Well, what these people are doing, uh, and, and they're not people actually, they are companies, is they are producing this... Music, I'm doing air quotes again. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and they're just posting it out sometimes thousands of times every few months. So they'll use the same piece of music and they'll just they'll churn it out. Or with different titles get, every time, just to try and get different di- clicks. Slightly different titles, but all with the view of spamming those words. So it would be like white noise, baby music for dogs hold on why the baby thing though is that because you you find an album you like again air quotes and then you leave it on for seven hours to put your baby to sleep so that's the best spotify revenue stuff people are listening to when they're not listening at all yeah they're they're just looking for stuff that they know will generate listens in the most easy simplistic way for them as possible which would be they just record uh, a fan for three hours and then they put it online and then morons like you will search uh, white noise baby sleep and then they're getting the views i mean one of the companies that are behind it they're a uk-based company called Amaritz, and they, they've been around since the 90s what they used to do is supply singers with backing tracks on cassette that was how they started their business but now they focus on on digital music and all they do literally all they do is produce tracks like that you go to their website Amaritz, they literally boast the first thing you'll see is that they've had 3 billion streams. Wow. So Spotify pay like a third of a penny, I think, for each 
track play. Yeah. So you, there you go. Quid's in. Okay, so that's the theory. How did it go in practice? You had 50 quid. What did you make? I decided to make music first because that's what, you know, that's how you introduced me to it with that. Now he's uh, not doing air quotes. (laughs) No, no, no. No. I decided to bear my soul as an artist and make the music that really matters to me. (laughs) That's totally what I wanted to do. Uh That's totally what I wanted to do. Although I do have certain musical qualities elsewhere. Well, as we all know, you, you wrote, and there are air quotes here. A uh, Christmas top 50 single. And you gave me 50 quid. Mm-hmm. So I thought, what can I do with this money? I don't need that for music production skills because that's all up here in my <laughs> PS brand. Yeah. So instead, I used that uh, to pay a distribution platform to help me publish the music on Spotify because that's what you have to do. Is it out? It is on Spotify. Okay. It is. Do you want me to tell what it's so called? I'm, I'm, want, yeah, sure. Me? Tell us. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be making my 50 quid back, I imagine, instantly if you've been so successful it, at this. It's called Music for Life, the album. Uh, it's called uh, Music for Life. And it's by Captain Spronk. Where did you get that name from? That doesn't feel like keywords. No, it's not keyword spamming. Because if you keyword spam that artist's name, there is a strong likelihood that your album will get rejected. Now, when I put the the album forward initially to this distribution platform, I got an email saying, you've been rejected. And basically, I had, because I was keyword spamming, contravened Apple Music's policy. What, what was the keyword spam that Apple objected to? Was your original artist name Steve Jobs? <laughs> they wouldn't give me specifics actually but it was the fact that it was like music for sleep and it just seemed a bit spammy i wonder if it's ai making that decision rather than a human being then probably is isn't it i would say almost certainly although the distribution platform that i put it forward to it did seem like there was an individual that was checking through the stuff that i put forward i'm sorry if you're listening i'm sorry about that what? i'm sorry we've wasted your time what? They got our money, Ollie man. They, <laughs> we have not wasted their time. How many followers does Captain Spronk have on Spotify? Oh, well, let's look now because I like live updates to make sure yeah. that I'm on top of it. Yeah. <clears throat> Here we go. Uh, none. Excellent. <laughs> none. <laughs> Absolutely none. So the album's out there. You can listen to it. I, I'm going to take you through the tracks, Ollie, so you can see. The, the, well, you, I, th- I think it's hear... clear, isn't it, from the amount of followers you have, there's already an appetite for a director's commentary. I mean, I think it's worth going behind the scenes. So, track one, Lo-Fi Music by Captain Spronk. Yeah. I mean, if I downloaded Lo-Fi Music by Captain Spronk, I'd be pleased with this i think there's more going on than i thought there'd be when you were set the challenge of keyword spamming there's multiple tracks happening here this is good isn't it this is lo-fi yeah 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 you know you could listen to this whilst typing away it also sounds a bit like the beginning of a hip-hop album like someone's going to come on now and go yeah yeah and then start you know then oh here we go the beat came in almost as i did it there you go all right why lo-fi ollie pitts Lo- lo-fi is a really popular searched uh, music genre on Spotify. Did People you write like to this? listen this to it. All right. Yeah, it's all right, I isn't mean, it? Yeah, it's I generic, but it's like three-star hotel balcony music, isn't it? It's fine. Yeah, took me fifteen minutes. It's all done. Yeah. It's okay. I'm off up there. I know. I, know, I don't deliver crap, Ollie man. I, I did well. say to you that I can. <laughs> Come on. I'm going to play you track two now. Okay. Music for focus. This is right by Captain Spronk. Okay, this isn't helping me focus. Oh, come on, just imagine. This is you practicing your drums, is what this is. No, no, this is, no, this is just a loop. No, just, just. Here you go. You're trying to focus. What are you focusing yeah. on? What do you focus on? Imagine you're thinking about, I don't know, some like radio program you've got coming up or whatever. You need mm. to focus. Here we go. Hmm. What should I talk about in the media podcast? Oh, uh. I've got an episode of Modern Man coming up. I think we should be clear that Ollie's ad-libbing here over the top. This isn't on the track, unfortunately. No, I don't like this one. This would... It's interesting, isn't it, that in the Spotify world, you would make a decision within two seconds and turn it off. That's just annoying. That sounds like you're practising the drums. The first one sounded okay. (laughs) I could imagine sipping a cocktail to the first one, albeit I'd have to be on my third or fourth cocktail. Okay, well, let's see if this one relaxes you a bit. This is music for meditation. Just relax your mind, Ollie Man. Do you know, it was a revelation to me when I worked out that if um, you have a massage in your own home rather than going to a spa, you don't have to listen to this shit. Uh, you know, that, like the panpipe thing that you have to listen to when you go to a spa. Like, the first time I realised that if someone comes to your house, you'd be like, can I just listen to an audiobook? Yes, use your headphones, fine. I, I, I can't bear this kind of thing. And making this music, I tell you what, they're onto something. Because this is the easiest thing to make in the entire world. 
So, so the, the, you know, I was literally just sat there pressing my keyboard with this weird like pan pipe synthesizer. Yeah. So easy. There's four yeah. minutes of this crap. Right. Let's go to the next one. Music for sleep. It's funny that it, there's obviously a thin line between like sleep music and music from a horror movie. Like someone could be about to die. But yeah. Yeah. Oh no, that's quite bit positive tense. that bit. This bit's not that's not tense. A bit tense. That is not tense. I don't have the musical vocabulary to explain why, but I feel like I'm waiting for the thing. You know like the resolution. You know I feel like it's a chord sequence, isn't it? And I'm it's leaving me hanging a bit. That's why it's a bit tense. Yeah, but the idea is it's, it's lulling you to sleep. If yes. it ends, then you won't go to sleep. I know what the idea is. I'm saying it's failing on its own terms. Don't get me wrong. I like. Well, track I was one. so I, I I was so confident in the in the merit of this music for sleep. It's only three minutes long because I just thought it would send you to sleep within two and a half. But I thought the whole point was to make like a 200 track album, and then when someone is asleep, they'll keep streaming, and that's where the money comes. Okay, here is this is very different. This is um an attempt to try and monetize off the very popular name of Ollie Mann. This track is called Ollie Mann by Captain Spronk. Right. <laughs> oh, this is like a nightmare. <laughs> it's like you're in my head. <laughs> it's horrible. a music festival and you end up in the comedy tent you're like what is this that's what this experience is Oh, the vocal merit on the end is amazing. Listen. Uh, as it goes on, I'm kind of growing to like it a bit. Wow. There you go. You think of that? Uh, it's kind of Bjork meets... Um, the wonder stuff but i'm not sure that's the oh, thing anyone's oh. looking for it's so competitive on spotify and you've got these companies that are, you know a decent size they're raking in what did they say three billion streams this company's had on on digital platforms so a little person like me doesn't stand much of a chance and i've been the really i'd struggle to find the niche and i think if you're out there and you want to try and make a living out of keyword spamming mm. look I don't want to stop you. Don't want to put you off it. But you really need to find that niche and you need to absolutely nail it. And it's like you are just, uh, you're, you're much better off spending your time learning how to do something else. I think that's my personal opinion. I tried the same thing on YouTube. I actually wrote some different songs. I made them longer okay. because I found things like Music for Sleep on on YouTube would have a, a track that's literally potentially 10 hours long, some of them, because people don't skip through tracks in the same way on YouTube as they do on Spotify. So I thought I'd give that a go. And uh, I had about the same success. I think I got four views in total over four tracks, which have been up there for about five weeks. So it just, <laughs> it's just been awful. But it is saturated. You search music for sleep or sleep music on YouTube and you will see how much stuff comes up there. And the illustration of me missing the boat, there's a track called Relaxing Sleep Music. It's been on YouTube for five years and it's had 290 million views. That's wow. one video. One video of slightly shonky crap relaxation music on YouTube. But what these other guys haven't had, Ollie, is the power of podcasting. I mean, you know, we now mm. have thousands of people who might be inclined to Google Captain Spronk. So there could yet be a second life in this project. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's perfectly plausible that uh, Ollie Mann by Captain Spronk uh, could be a top 10 hit. Uh, 
Uh, sure. Time to give you your challenge for next month's episode. It is from Edwin, who has been in touch at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and clicked on the feedback form. And he says, one of the trends that I noticed during lockdown here in Australia was people taking up knitting. Can Ollie be challenged to knit something recognisable? Now, this seemed like the challenge to issue this month to you, Ollie, because of uh, Tom Daly's antics in Tokyo and knitting genuinely seeming to trend around the world, particularly male knitting, uh, if that is a thing, <laughs> there is any differentiation by gender. Young men taking up knitting. This could be the moment. Do you know what? I've always been sort of interested in making my own clothes anyway. And I saw that jumper that Tom Daly made. It's pretty good, you know. I, I, I would like to acquire the skills to be able to do that. Have you ha had any experience at all? Uh, well, my grandma used to knit. And my only experience with knitting was that when I was about, I suppose, 12 years old, I was at her, her house and I was asking about with the knitting needles, as you do, if, you, if you've got a grandparent that's got knitting needles, you ask about with them. Anyway, I fell off the back of the sofa and the knitting needle went up and through my arm. Ooh. Uh, sort of this way. <laughs> So that's the experience I've got with knitting. Did you go to A&E? Nah, she just pulled it out and told me to stop whinging. <laughs> right. So um, this will be fun. <laughs> A quick thank you to our sponsors for the Zeitgeist. Manscaped. Trusted by over two million men worldwide. To ensure that they are perfectly groomed, Manscaped have now released the Lawnmower 4.0. As if the 3.0 wasn't already the best pubic trimmer known to mankind, they have improved upon it, Ollie. They've got the 4000 Kelvin LED spotlight. Now, I think they've researched that 4000 Kelvins is the very best light to use when trimming your scrotum. But what they've mm. done, they've given you the ability to turn it on or off. You can have it on or off. So you can now do a puppetry of the penis style shadow puppet show while shaving your balls because you can you can project or not. Just be sure not to do it onto your bathroom blind so your neighbours can see through it. Uh, it's also wireless charge now as well, which sounds like a silly thing, like who needed a wireless charging uh, pubic trimmer? But, you know, just being able to just put the thing down and knowing it's charging is easier. You are saving yourself those seconds in the bathroom. Yeah, so if you are still trimming your balls with your face trimmer, it's time for a change. And it's got a travel lock now, so it's not going to buzz in your bag anymore. So you, you can turn it off and be sure that it's off when you're taking it through customs. Yeah, imagine, imagine you're Alex Fox and you're walking through the airport, going through security, mm. and your, your, your bag starts buzzing. And it, it's not your vibrating butt plug. It's, it's, it's your ball no. trimmer. It's your ball trimmer going It's your ball trimmer. How embarrassing would that be? So like you're, embarrassing. You're an ambassador oh. for, for a machine that jerks you off, not one that cuts you down. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You'd be devastated. <laughs> if you want free shipping and 20% off, then use the code MAN, M-A-N-N, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code M-A-N-N. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Uh, thank you, Ollie Pitts. Cheers, Ollie. Coming up next, we will meet Manfan Glenn and hear his experiences of what went wrong when he went to China. Uh, but first, it's time for our record of the month. It's the new single from Priya Ragu, part of her mixtape dropping on September the 3rd. It's called Kamali, and you can check it out now. As I was saying earlier, it is enormously satisfying to us that so many of our middle features these days are interviews with you guys, man fans, who get in touch to share your stories. We can't reply to all your emails, but I promise we do read all of them. And this one came in from Glenn Williams, a man fan who lives in Wales. After he graduated from university, he was one evening browsing a well-known job search website and he spotted an advert for an English teacher in Beijing. Having previously studied in China as part of his degree, the idea appealed to him. 
which it seemed quite fun. You can earn quite a lot of money. Maybe I'll enjoy the teaching and it might be something I want to do. There was, it was a Chinese agency and they had a recruiter in the UK from what I could sense. What did they say to you in the interview? It's a teaching position in China. You'll come over to China. We'll give you some training because obviously I had zero training as a teacher. I didn't even have a TEFL, which is a requirement for teaching abroad. I didn't have a TEFL. I told them this and they were like, yeah, that's absolutely fine. How much did they tell you they could pay? Uh, they said it depends on schools, but you'd get roughly two to £3,000 a month. Wow, that's a lot of money straight out of university, isn't it? Yeah, and they said it is a tax-free wage, and that was one of the attractions, but also should have been one of the red flags. And they did say also that um, every three months you do a visa trip. So like, it's just for your visa, you have to leave China and come back every three months. What did your family back in Wales think about it? A lot of people were like... Why would you want to go to China? It's a big communist country. It's going to be scary. You're going to have to follow all these rules. And when you get there, especially as a foreigner, you just get a VPN. You can still go on Twitter, YouTube. You can still access all these things. There is a lot of surveillance, but you live your day-to-day life. Like We all went to pubs and we all went out with each other until the early hours and lived a semi-regular life like you would expect. So who paid for your flight? Uh, I did. So there's an element of you kind of trusting the agency that you're working with then, isn't there, really? Like, you're paying for your own flight, you don't have a contract, you've just got to promise that you're going to earn this seemingly incredible amount of money for a task for which you have no qualification. Yeah, pretty much. So then I land in China, and then they um, meet me at the airport, the driver picks me up and takes me to a hotel, and said, come to this address, it was in the centre of Beijing, saying, this is our offices, come here in the morning, and we'll start your training. There's loads of people in there, and basically, the first thing they asked me to do was to do a practice lesson, just to see where I was, like my baseline, I suppose. And then I did it, and then um, they were like, okay, we can work on this, this, and this. How old were the children that you'd be teaching? Uh, from I think the youngest was about four or five, and then the oldest was 12. That's a bit crazy, isn't it? I mean, you know, if you're just teaching someone in their native language, you teach a six-year-old and a 12-year-old very different texts. Yeah, exactly. And obviously, I was not trained as a teacher whatsoever. And on the third day, they said that I had an interview with a school. So basically, I go to the school, and then all they cared about was the accent. They didn't really care about my teaching experience. And they just go, yep, your accent's great. You can start next week. What were they looking for? Just an English or an American accent, really. Just intelligible, basically. Basically, yeah. As long as you don't have a strong, thick accent, they were quite happy with it. So was your suspicion then that it was a bit of a money machine for the agency, really? They just wanted to get anyone who looked vaguely right into the schools that would pay the most? Yeah, and I think there was a massive, or there still is, a massive demand for English teachers out there. So they were just trying to get as many through the door as possible, to be honest. So you were teaching for 10 months? So the first month or so, I was absolutely shitting myself every <laughs> before every class, because it is quite intimidating, especially when you have a class of... 15 kids and you're not a teacher and you have no training they initially showed me a tiny 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 flat with two chinese old women and i said look i i can't live here i need something a bit nicer than this and then they showed me the flat i ended up living in and it looked lived in and i was trying to gauge there was no one there at the time when i was viewing it i was trying to gauge who lived here and i i came to the conclusion that it was a man on his own and i was going to be living with him and then i move in and it's a couple newly engaged waiting to get married and then (laughs) I would moved into their flat basically which was a bit odd but they were very nice and I still in contact with them now yeah that's difficult though isn't it because you'd probably rather have been sharing with other people doing a similar thing to you instead you get home in the evening and you feel a bit like a lemon in someone else's relationship yeah it was a bit odd I'd come home and they're watching like Chinese soaps and I'd come in in the middle of it and it was a bit strange but they were really nice she didn't speak a word of english he spoke a little bit and was interested in learning so we did get on quite well but yeah it was i was never 100 percent comfortable what's a fun thing to do in the evening in beijing in the evening well i'm a photographer so i went out with my camera a lot and that combated a lot of the loneliness i was out with my camera and then after a few months a few more teachers started i started knowing some other teachers in the city so we'd all go out and Everyone there was in the same scenario with the visa trips. I think I only knew one person who wasn't on the same visa as me. I knew it was a little bit like cutting corners, but I didn't really think there was a big issue in it. 
What do you mean? I knew there was obviously something up if I had to leave the country every three months. But the fact that everybody I knew was on it, I obviously I thought, well, they obviously don't care that much because every teacher is doing it. Yeah. And had you done that then? Had you left after the three months and gone somewhere else? Yeah, I went to Seoul twice in Korea. For how long? Uh, like a weekend each time. And I'd stay in the same hostel and then just have a weekend partying in Korea and then come back again. So you knew when you were doing that, this is to fulfil the requirements of my visa that I can't stay in the country for longer than three months, but that's what every teacher does, that's what I've been advised to do. Yeah, and then when I'd go to Korea as well, there was usually the hostel was full or half full of people doing the same as me on their so-called visa trips. What were their jobs? All English teachers. So it was in November, my agency phoned me and um, they were all, all the agency were mid-twenties Chinese women and she phoned me just on my way to work so it was a quick conversation and she goes, um, Glenn, if any um, police officers speak to you uh, in the next few days, just um, tell them that you're in China selling whiteboards and I couldn't really argue with that because they didn't have the English capabilities to explain it properly I was like, okay, that's very strange, but I've got to go to work. I'll chase up on this afterwards. And then three days later, about nine o'clock in the morning, I'd been out. I'd had a couple of friends over in the evening. I'd been out to the pub, nothing crazy. So I wasn't feeling fresh, but I wasn't ridiculously rough. And I get a bang on the door and I think, oh, it's probably just my housemates. I don't know if they need anything. And I open it and there's four Chinese police officers and a translator. He goes, what are you doing in China? And I go selling whiteboards and then he goes <laughs> working at eblocks question mark and i thought well he clearly knows the name of my school i'm not going to be able to get away with this so i was like yes yes and then um yeah they took me down so i lived on like the 17th floor which i don't know why they needed four police officers to come and arrest me especially if i lived that high up but um i wasn't going to escape or run away but well, was it clear that it was an arrest it wasn't just yeah I'd like to look at your paperwork sir um they were a bit aggressive, but they didn't handcuff me. They asked me if I wanted to be handcuffed, actually, and I politely declined. And then they took me to the police station, and then two police officers came in and interrogated me. It was sort of a bit good cop, bad cop. One of them bought me some food, some rice. The other one was like, are you a man? Why? Uh, if you were a real man, you would sort out your own visa. And I was saying, I went to the visa center. I don't know what else I could have done, sorry. And then... Um, mm. Yeah, just a lot of interrogating. I could hear my colleagues. I could hear my Russian colleague, Veronica. I heard her in the next room and I heard my South African colleagues. So I sort of felt a bit comfortable, but also I thought, oh no, are they in trouble because I've said their names? But then I thought they are also here. So at least we're all in this together type thing. I'm not completely alone. They put me in a cell downstairs underneath the police station. And then uh, that's when I first saw Veronica, who I'd been teaching with in the school. And how had their 13 hours been? Her experience is basically the same as mine. She said they came to the school, came and got her and the other two teachers. But the South African teacher who I was teaching with, um, Jock, he was allowed to go home because when we got there, they basically said, give us £500 or give us all your money. And you can't really say no, it was just a bribe. So I sent them all my money just to transfer on WeChat. And that was just the police officers wanted money. But he was lucky that he had a nice police officer who then, after he sent him his bribe, his police officer helped him get the correct visa and he ended up staying in China for a few more months. Wow. And you had a police officer that was corrupt, but not friendly with it. Yeah, he just basically took my money and then put me in the cell downstairs. We had to do fingerprints and take the pictures with our names on and the classic mugshots. And uh, at one point, a police officer knocked on my cell door and goes, do you need to go to the toilet? specifically asking me and I was Mm. like no thank you I'm fine and then he goes I like boys would you like to come to the toilet and so was that another bribe of sorts do you think yeah and I well it was weird because also gay rights in China aren't like they are here it's quite it's still quite frowned upon there I'd say so it was a bit odd and I obviously didn't take him up on his offer I just said politely, no, thank you. And then he's, I didn't. I don't think I saw him again. I thought, I can't go to the toilet because 
I don't know what he's going to do. And if I end up having a fight with the Chinese police officer, that's not going to go down well. It was in the middle of the night. They put me, Veronica, and um, Kate, another teacher from my school, the two Russian girls, in a police van. It wasn't a police car or anything. It was just like a, a minibus. And we were just in the back of it. God, I mean, that must have been a bit scary. Bearing in mind at this point, you've already been propositioned by a predatory security guard and bribed by a police officer. You're now putting an unmarked car and they're not telling you where you're going. When you say it like that, it does sound quite scary. But at the time, I don't think I ever thought anything serious was going to happen. Because I, I think in my head, I was like, my crime is teaching children illegally. I don't think anything <laughs> that crazy is going to come out of this. They took us to some sort of police headquarters and they say that we're going to spend a few days in a detention centre and they painted it as if it was going to be, there'd be a gym there and like a library. It almost sounded like it'd be quite like a, almost like a rehab type thing. And I was like, mm. okay, this isn't ideal, but it could be worse. And there's probably an element of you is there that thinks, well, this is obviously what they do with the Westerners. Yeah, like They're not going to send me to the frightening Chinese prison. They're going to send me to the one that, you know, I'll go home and tell everyone it was okay. Yeah, exactly. And I think always in my head, I was thinking they're not going to want to cause a huge political issue. So they might be maybe slightly nicer to the Westerners. Mm. But then um, they took us to this detention center. And then we had to do a medical, which was in this tiny little room no bigger than a small office in front of this doctor. So basically take all our clothes off, do a 360 and put all the clothes back on. And also they took a blood sample. So then, wow. yeah, and then we I did that. We then went back outside, waited for some more processing. Is that how you're feeling still? I am being processed, this is fine? Or are you now thinking this is a bit weird? Well, when we got to the detention centre, it was quite clear that it wasn't, there wasn't a gym and a library and a TV room and a games room. It looked like a prison with big bars and things. I was thinking, yeah, this is starting to get a bit weird. And there was another couple there as well, another South African couple, lots of South Africans teaching English there. And um, they were also being arrested on this um, incorrect visa. So they were obviously doing like the rounds of all the illegal teachers in Beijing at the time. And the girls were getting quite upset so me and the other South African guy were maybe putting on a front, trying to sort of say, yeah, it's all going to be fine, making a joke about it, saying that everything's going to be okay. And then mm. I think me and him were also probably a little bit scared as well, but putting on a front of not being that scared. And then I think it sort of hit when the girls went away. They, took the, they had to take all their clothes and their possessions, and they came out in these um, yellow and blue boiler suits and a Tupperware and then a bag of like, just like toiletries, very basic toiletries. And then they went off to the women's part of the centre, and then I haven't seen them since. That was the last time I saw Veronica and Kate. To get, take our clothes off, put it in like a plastic bag. Uh, they wrote our name on it, put it on a shelf. We had to put a boiler suit on. Uh, we were just in our one pair of boxes, that was it. And then boiler suit. And then they gave us a Tupperware and like a spoon and some very basic toiletries. And then just said, Come with us and took us to ourselves. And at this point, it was about six o'clock in the morning. It looked like a prison hallway that you'd see in the films with bars and everything. And then the big iron doors and at this point you still haven't had your call you still haven't spoken to a lawyer nothing no I've spoken to no one they had said that I'm getting a 10 day sentence at this point they said that on the way to the cell so I thought okay these days are getting longer and longer but 10 days I've just got to suck it up and do a 10 day sentence and I think I always thought I was going to be able to contact someone at some point but yeah, I just, I think I've maybe compartmentalised it, didn't really overthink it. I just thought, I've just got to get on with this. I think at the time as well, I always thought, well, this will be a funny story to tell my friends at the pub when I get home. I'm just trying to downplay it, I suppose, in my head constantly. Like, it's not a big deal. I'll get out. They took me to my cell about half six in the morning. They opened the door. There's a single bed and a small little gap to walk up along and then a bathroom 
with like a glass wall. So there's a camera looking at the cell so it can see all parts of it. And the window is glass, so they can obviously see in there. And it just had a hole in the floor, a hose pipe, and a sink. And then it was myself, two Ghanaians who are also illegally working in China on illegal visas. And then about 10 to 15 Chinese people who were all in... What? In this one room you're describing? Yeah. When you mentioned the dimensions, I was thinking this was going to be for you and a roommate. No, it was... There was a lot of us in there. There was... 12 to 15 people sleeping on nine beds lined up and on these little mattresses that you'd have to roll out. And no privacy? No, none at all. And I'd arrived just in time for breakfast, which was a steamed bun and some corn millet. So I thought, okay, this is going to be my food for the next couple of weeks. I was a bit overweight at the time, so I thought at least I'll lose some weight. (laughs) And um, started speaking to the Ghanaians who had been there for close to a month. So then I thought, okay... I'm not getting out in 10 days, probably not. We didn't get to leave the cell for the first four days. I was just speaking to the Ghanaians who were there, and an American came in on the second day. So I'd spoken to him quite a lot. That must have been a relief to have someone you could speak English to. Yeah, exactly. He was an American gospel singer from Boston. He what was, was he doing there? He was also an English teacher. <laughs> so we'd all been caught doing the same thing, but he'd been teaching for over 10 years in China, so... They were obviously trying to do a big crackdown at the time, and I'd got caught up in it. What was the atmosphere like in there? Um, Not too bad. There was never any violence or anything. There was one Chinese person who didn't speak any English, and he'd always stare at me. And I think on, like, day nine, I got a bit aggressive with him. But there was never any fighting or anything. I just sort of told him to stop staring at me and gave him a shove. Because the Chinese people in there, they weren't murderers or anything. It was more little like drug crimes or fighting when they were drunk or the biggest one actually was you know the rental bikes the mo bikes and things yeah if you crash into someone in one of them in china and then cycle off so like a hit like a hit and run Mm. then you get three days in prison for that so that's what most of the people in there were there for so none of them were hardened criminals i had a little cry on i think day four because I still hadn't left the cell and it was a Wednesday night and that was my favourite class of the week. So I was thinking, oh, wow, they're in class now and they have no idea what's happened to me. (laughs) Yeah. And did you see other people having similar moments around you? There was one guy in there who I think was, I think they do like a three strike system or something. And he would just had his third strike. So he was waiting to find out if he was going to have to go to like a maximum security prison and actually do a proper three-year prison term or something. And I think he found out on day seven or something that he had to, and then he left, so he got quite upset at that, which it was all in Chinese, so I couldn't understand exactly what was being said, but it was explained to us after what happened, and he was quite upset. We had a guy from Myanmar who, at the time, I thought he was Chinese and deaf. I didn't actually understand his situation at all because he didn't speak to anyone, so I assumed he was deaf. We'd look at pictures in the China Daily and like laugh at them and stuff like that, just minor things. And then one of the Chinese people spoke to me and said that he'd been caught underneath a lorry in Beijing with four of his friends trying to flee Myanmar. They were all put in different cells in the prison and he has no documents nothing he's probably never going to get to go home he'll just be stuck there and not sure whatever happened to him i sort of realized yes this situation is a bit shit for me but for someone like him fleeing a country like that it could be a hell of a lot worse what was the routine you you said there was a newspaper so did you have some access to entertainment we had a tv that showed movies like for two hours a day and they were all Chinese, sort of like 90s movies, so it wasn't particularly exciting, and there wasn't really a comfortable seating arrangement because you weren't allowed to sit on the wooden beds to watch it. So you were never allowed to sit on the wooden beds during the day. We had these little plastic stools, and if you sat on the wooden beds, they would come on the microphone and tell us to get off, basically. So they're watching you on camera all the time. Yeah. And you have to stay seated on a plastic seat all day long yeah or you can walk up and down the little walkway if you like people would do press-ups and sit-ups and just try and do anything to stay stimulated really and you don't have 
anything else with you, just that two hours of Chinese movies and a Chinese newspaper. Yep, that was it. So you say you didn't speak to anyone for four days. What happened on day five then? The embassy came to see us. Thankfully, Jacques got out because he was able to contact one of the teachers who'd previously worked in the school and left a few weeks before. And she lives in Scotland. So Gemma, who lives in Scotland, was able to contact my family and let them know the situation. So he told me that this had happened. My family know I'm here. My brother in Brunei has been made aware. And then he was going to come over to China to try and help get me out. But basically they were saying there's not really anything we can do. We just have to wait for you have the 10 days you were told is a 10 day sentence. And then after that, you have your processing time and processing can take anything from a day to as long as they want, basically. So that was the issue with the guy from Myanmar. Like he would never be able to be processed. Yeah, because there's no one coming from Myanmar to come and get him really, is there? So he was just going to be stuck there. So he said, just hold tight. And in 10 days time, what? They just came every week. They just said, yep, you just have to wait. I don't think it'll take long. That's all they always, always said. Like, I think you'll be out soon. It won't take long. And then eventually on day 15, there was like a tiny little crevice between the, the last bed and the wall where the door is, where you could sort of put your bed sheets and have a little nap. And then about 8 a.m., one of the other cellmates sort of kicked my leg and told me to get up. So I thought it was roll call because... And I got up scared because you're not really supposed to be sleeping during the day. So the way you know that they're telling you you're leaving is they point at your Tupperware. So he pointed at my Tupperware. So I thought, okay, that means collect it. You're coming with us. I then did some processing. They put me in a uh, van. I was trying to ask them, are we going to the airport in very broken Chinese? They wouldn't answer me. I knew that the prison was in the south of Beijing. I noticed we were heading north towards the airport so I could sort of gauge yes we are going to the airport I wasn't allowed to leave the car and I saw my brother walk past the car but I wasn't allowed to go out and say hello to him that uh, must have felt amazing though to see him yeah it was a big relief eventually some guy came and then let me go and see my, my brother for 10-15 minutes who'd managed to collect all my stuff from my flat in Beijing it's quite common in China for them to just take all the stuff out of the room or your flat and just leave it on the streets and obviously I had all my photography gear and things like that, so I was worried that that would all be gone. But thankfully, he'd been able to get most of it from my flat. And then I saw him, and then, yeah, they guided me all the way to the plane then. He did give me a piece of paper saying, this is basically explaining your situation and your ban from China for five years from this date. So I couldn't go, I can't go back for five years. I've got about two years left. I told the air hostess my situation, so she just let me have as much wine as I wanted for the whole flight. <laughs> I got very, very, very drunk and just passed out, basically, on the flight. I was just so exhausted. I woke up in the middle of the night and couldn't walk because I had pins and needles like severe pins and needles just because of the lack of nutrients I'd had but I think I was just exhausted and needed a needed a few weeks just to collect my thoughts and relax for a bit I think you wrote some thoughts down didn't you you wrote down what had happened to you so that you had a contemporary record of it and you wrote it on your Huawei phone and then you said to me when you emailed me got rid of your Huawei phone for obvious reasons. Weirdly, we all said in the prison, because James, the American guy, had gotten a Huawei a week before he was arrested, and I'd gotten one the day before. So we were all thinking, like, I wonder if it's because we got a Huawei, because I had an iPhone previously, and I'd lost mm. that. And we were th th theorising that maybe it's because we got a Huawei that they'd found us, and then I found out the real reason I got caught afterwards was because... One of the teachers in my agency in the, another part of China had had a heart attack or something and had died. And the police had gone to their flat and realized, who is this person? Why are they in China? And then they'd tracked them to the agency. And then they'd found the agency and all the teachers linked to that agency. So it wasn't actually anything to do with my Huawei. But um, yeah, I thought it'd be best to get rid of it anyway. And what about the company that put you out there? Have you been in touch with them? So I messaged one of the... Um, one of the girls at the agency who was the main person I communicated with about my accommodation and any issues I had saying 
hi, not sure if you care, but I'm out of prison. So something along those lines. And she never responded. And it is my understanding that they got multi-year sentences, all of them, and the whole company got shut down. China is the world's second largest global economy. It sounds like maybe, bizarrely, you'd be interested to go back again. (laughs) Are you still choosing your words carefully when you're talking about your experience there? Uh, Weirdly, I'd never, ever thought of that question up until just before I was coming on this podcast. And I thought, wait, should I maybe be careful of what I say? Because like you just mentioned, I always joke with my girlfriend that the day that my five-year ban is up we're going to go on a holiday to China and then I think the closer it gets maybe the more scared I actually am like do I actually want to go back there because especially more and more they are cracking down on things and you hear about people getting arrested and disappearing out there but I'm fairly open in the fact that I'm I do not like the Chinese government for obvious reasons but I do love the Chinese people it's hard to navigate it because I don't want to come across offensive to China because I loved the nine and a half months I spent there just not the two weeks at the end and just to be clear have you ever sold a whiteboard I've never ever sold a whiteboard in my life (laughs) Glenn Williams and if you've got a story you'd like to share on the podcast, do get in touch via the feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, still to come, what to do when sex gives you a post-dopamine come down? Your questions of sex with Alex Fox after this. Righto, time to get your bits and bobs out. It is the Foxhole with Alex Fox. How are you? Hello, Ollie. I'm feeling so glorious that even my cuticles are giving me cute tickles. What have you been doing this month? I have been learning about the horny and the horned by going to a talk about satanic feminism. Yeah, there's a lot of words in that sentence. I suppose I'm just left to say, what? The basic premise is that, according to the Bible... Eve was the first to heed Satan's advice to eat the apple, the forbidden fruit. And so in a lot of religious interpretations, she is seen and um, by extension, all women are seen as accomplices of the devil at worst, like the worst in humankind, or at best, uh, more suggestible and more easily led by evil. In other words, women don't fare well in traditional interpretations of a lot of Christian texts. Wow. The the modern conversation is really interesting too, though, because it does analyse whether a lot of the men now involved in Satanism and even the way that Satanism is referenced in pop culture, like uh, metal music, for example, borrows some of those ideas, at least in its iconography. In a lot of those contexts, women are used as erotic accessories. Now I come to think of it, I can't think of any female satan referencing bands that i was aware of there are satanic feminist bands now they do not have that many listens on spotify but i've given them a follow this week (laughs) good 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 uh right time for your questions of sex because that's what we're here to talk about believe it or not uh sponsored by our friends at thehandy.com the best male masturbator that isn't a well-lubed human hand. I actually read some reviews and one of them described it as hands down the best automated penis stroker available. And you would need to put your hands down, really. That's the whole point. This month's question is from an anonymous man fan who says, I am a young gay lady with a problem. After sex, I often feel quite depressed. I become needy and I can sometimes feel quite hollow and drained, often until the end of the day. Going out or being away from my partner becomes unbearable. And although they understand and treat me with love and care, it is very inconvenient. We normally have a very happy, healthy relationship and we have great sex. But my post-sex low makes me feel a bit broken and makes her feel a bit guilty. Alex, do you have any tips to fight off the crash? Not only do I have tips, but I also have a name for this specific feeling of feeling like a sad sack after you've had a good time in the sack. And it is PCD. (gasps) You know, I'm I'm so annoyed. I'm so annoyed I didn't interrupt you because before you said that, I was like, I bet it's post-coital depression because that's obviously what you'd call it. And then I was like, I won't say that because it won't be that. She'll have some other name for it. And then when you said PCD, I was like, fuck, why didn't I get in there and show how clever I am? It's obviously Are you now depressed about the fact that you didn't get in there (laughs) faster (laughs) 
Charlie. Yeah, I've got P-A-R, post-acronym remorse. It's also called uh, post-coital tristesse, so you might hear it referred to that way. Um, And it can express itself in a variety of ways. For some people, it's bursting into tears. Uh, Others find themselves feeling kind of let down, even if their partner hasn't acted uncaringly towards them. Others still find themselves getting really argumentative and picking a fight after sex for really no reason whatsoever. Um, It's quite common as well. Nearly half of men and women report experiencing PCD at least once in their lives. Now, it can last anywhere from a few minutes to several hours. And for some people, it happens once in a blue moon. For others, they get the blues every time they have a blue moment with their partner. So it's really on a sliding scale of severity. And it sounds like for our writer, it's at, unfortunately, the more extreme end of that. How much do you think is chemical and how much is related to shame? Because, you know, you often speak to particularly teenage men will talk about after masturbation just feeling embarrassed and awkward and full of shame that they've just done that thing, particularly if it's for, you know, the second or third time that day, particularly if it's happened in the morning. They'll feel embarrassed that they gave in to those feelings. I think you've hit a lot of nails directly on the head there. No one is entirely sure what gives rise to postcoital dysphoria and it may likely be a mixture. One thing that it is important that I underline is that according to the International Society for Sexual Medicine, it can happen to anyone. So it's not tied to your gender or your sexuality. It's not necessarily related to how good the sex that you've had is or how great your relationship is. Although obviously it can be really confusing for people Mm. if they, they, they feel very close to their partner and like they have a great functioning healthy relationship and they experience what they perceive to be really good sex and then they feel awful afterwards or lacking or let down that can cause them to question whether their belief that their relationship is good is actually true or not um so let's have a look at what the reasons can be um Firstly, it can be a hormonal response or a chemical response. So during sex and during arousal, during orgasm, the body gets absolutely saturated with chemicals. You get a big rush of hormones and things like dopamine and serotonin, and they initially make you feel really great. For some people, that feeling of greatness is sustained. For others, there's a real drop afterwards. And we see this in other areas of life as well, in other areas of sex. It's really interesting to think about, for example, in BDSM, people often talk about sub-drop, which is when a submissive person who may have experienced a spike in the, in the body's natural endorphins and painkillers as a result of being spanked, for example, when those endorphins start to leave the body, they feel really sad, even though their body is returning to a normal chemical level, if you mm. will. Comparatively, it's a low So is it extreme, do you think, that she's describing a situation where this feeling can last all day? Well, bodies are really complicated chemical swamps and everybody's is very different. So it might genuinely be that in this particular individual, that chemical drop sets off a domino effect elsewhere in her body. So hormones and chemicals may still be playing a really big part. I agree with you that this does sound like a more pronounced, unfortunate experience of PCD. But there might be other things at play here. You mentioned earlier that idea of shame. Mm. Now, I really want to be careful not to jump to pathologise something here. But if you have any guilt associated with sex, even if it's subliminal, if it's subconscious, if you feel bad about your body or your quote-unquote performance, if you've got past sexual trauma or, and again, I really don't want to insist that this is the case, but it's interesting that this person mentions that they're a gay woman. If they have been made to feel bad about being gay in the past or if they have internalised on any level that feeling of of guilt or shame Mm. about their sexuality, then that might be playing a part here. That, again, though, is not an unusual situation. You spoke about how guys can feel really weird and empty and lonely after they've had a wank. We know that people often watch stuff that really turns them on in porn and delights and excites them when they're in the moment. And then afterwards, they get a sense of revulsion and they're really disgusted 
by what they've just spaffed to. And um, that's partly because the body does actually shut down. It dampens, quite literally, if you're a lesbian woman, your sense of disgust and revulsion during sex. It's an evolutionary trait. We've adapted. Mm. Because your genitals to, have done uh, the bit they need to do, haven't they? And then you need yeah. your, your blood and your energy to focus on something else. On the face of it, if someone says, talking about straight penetrative sex here, if someone says, can I put the probe that I piss through inside of your body and thrust it about, mm. on paper, that sounds quite gross. Mm. And and the whole act of, you know, getting sweaty with somebody and, and exchanging bodily fluids, it is kind of disgusting. And I say that in, in a, in a, without, without judgment. It's taken but, six so, years for you to finally admit it. <laughs> it's gloriously disgusting. But if, we, if we're talking on a very feral, visceral level, most of the time... It's encoded within us to avoid disgusting things, squelchy stuff, germs, getting overly close to another another human, especially the bits that we and poo come out of. For all sorts of good health reasons, it's, it's really baked into us to most of the time be disgusted by that sort of thing. OK, so it's probably more normal than she thinks it is. It's potentially explained by a whole range of different psychological reasons and chemical ones as well. But what can she do about it? If she and her partner spend a reasonable amount of time after sex, and I'm stressing reasonable here because I think she's already acknowledged that expecting her partner to stick around with her all day and hold her hand after sex is um, perhaps a bit bit much of an ask. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But so... Having a talk about what it is reasonable to expect that will help her feel held immediately after sex and prepare her to re-enter the world might be a good thing. Secondly, you can do some self-care and this might take a little bit of planning. Can you watch 15 minutes of comedy that will help put your mind Mm. in another place that is upbeat? Could you hop in the shower uh, and put a funny audio book in? Can you create a ritual for yourself after sex that helps you to take care of your needs? Finally, if this persists and is becoming a really big issue, I would say go and see a professional. Go see a counsellor or a sex therapist. There are loads out there now that specifically cater to gay women. And finally, I'd just remind people that as a culture, I think we do have this idea sometimes of that after-sex glow mm. um, and that it's everything about post-sex should be blissful and, and sun-kissed. Or at least a bit arthouse and French. Sometimes we can frame sex as this magical cure-all. For some of us, that's the truth. For others of us, it's really not. For the camp for which it's not, it's not a fault with you. It's really a fault with how we as a society oversimplify sex. But remember how much pleasure you get from listening to The Foxhole and cling on to that. (laughs) Um, Our thanks to our sponsors, The Handy.com, the ultimate male masturbation machine. The machine itself that provides the movement is around the size of two Coke cans. You attach a masturbation sleeve to it using a Velcro strap. So on the surface of it, it's quite simple, straightforward, but you can use it to do all sorts of incredible things. Um, Just as an aside, Handy do provide a masturbation sleeve with the the whole kit, but you can switch in a lot of other sleeves too. So Mm. if you already have a favourite, say, uh, Fleshlight or Tenga or something like that, you can customise not only the speed of stroke, but also the length of stroke. It goes from zero to 110 millimetres. We can customise our masturbation to the millimetre now, (laughs) Ollie Man. Well, my thanks to the lady who always goes at 110, Alex Fox. See you next time. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this episode of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is John from Southampton who says, Ollie, I really enjoy your podcast and have done for what seems like years. It almost certainly is years, John. Uh, I always kept meaning to send money, but as I always listen when I'm out and about, I forget when I get back to a place that I have my wallet and computer. So please accept this payment equivalent to 40 beers as a back payment, and please don't drink all the beer at once. 
John, very wise words. Uh, and thank you for that donation, which actually came in November 2020. Um, sorry, we've got a bit of a backlog. So perhaps you can consider it a ambassadorship back payment in itself. We can say for official purposes that you've been a ambassador since then. The paperwork all checks out. Uh, until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on September the 10th. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.